0: Well, you know, for a lot of people, uh, actually probably most people, change in one form or another can be a real struggle, uh, which I think is understandable because when something significant in your life changes, there's always an adjustment that has to be made to whatever uh, that new normal is. And I think for most people, uh, that often involves some measure of struggle, just getting used to what is different after that change. And usually the bigger the change, The bigger the struggle, because the more significantly things change, the more significantly, of course, your life is affected by that change. Now, with that in mind, consider what the Apostle Paul wrote to the church in Corinth. If anyone is in Christ, meaning if anyone is a Christian, he is a new creation. The old has passed away, Behold, the new has come, 2 Corinthians 5, 17. You understand, when you become a Christian, the change that occurs is nothing short of cataclysmic to your life, because it is an all-encompassing, all-consuming change. It affects every single area of your life without exception. In fact, the single most profound and radical change that anyone could ever possibly experience on this earth is to receive an entirely new life in Christ which again according to Paul is what happens when you become a Christian you're not just believing in something new you're actually becoming something new which means your life that previously existed dies away as you become a new man or a new woman in him and so it's not just a part of your life that changes when you come to Christ no Everything changes when you come to Christ. Everything. Paul said the old has passed away. The old is deceased. Behold, the new has come. And yet there's this ongoing struggle that so many of us wrestle with in embracing that change, that new life, because we don't always want to completely let go of the old life. We're eager for Jesus to add some great new stuff into our lives, but not always so eager to let go of all of the old stuff in our lives. And what you end up with is Christians who are not fully committed to either life. Believers in Jesus Christ who are trying to live between two worlds, between two kingdoms, between two lives. But Paul didn't say, if anyone is in Christ, he has some new options. No, he said, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. You see, the real struggle is not that God didn't do enough in you when you came to Christ to meet all of your needs. No, the real struggle is that you haven't accepted all that God has already done in you when you came to Christ to meet all of your needs. Again, Paul didn't say the new is coming. No, he said the new has come. You have a new spirit. Which means you have a new source of supply. You also have a new destiny. You have a new purpose. You have a new promise. You have a new family. You have a new passion. You have a new joy. You have a new peace. You have a new love. You have a new hope. You have a new life. Because you are now a new creation. Which means all of those things are already yours. They're already inside of you. It's not that uh, something is missing and you need to figure out how to get it from God. Now He's already given you everything that you need to successfully navigate this life in the very center of his will. But listen, you cannot walk into something new without walking out of something else and so if you're going to fully embrace the new you have to let go of the old because the old has passed away the new has come you cannot hold on to life in one hand and death in the other and expect there to be no conflict between the two but when you learn to let go of the old life and fully embrace the new life that has already been given to you. Everything changes. This is why Paul also said, put off your old self. This was written to Christians. Put off your old self, which belongs to your former manner of life and is corrupt through deceitful desires, and be renewed in the spirit of your minds, and put on the new self... Created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness, Ephesians 4, 22 through 24 This is the difference between Christians who fully walk in the new life that has been given to them and those who are still clinging to the old life even while trying to embrace the new, which shows up in nearly every aspect of their lives. As we'll see in our study today, for those who are still holding on to their old life, things like sacrificial love, and submissive obedience and even earnest prayer those are all exceptional pursuits in their lives they are the exception to the rule but for those who fully embrace their new life in Christ sacrificial love and submissive obedience and earnest prayer those things are normal you understand they're common They're actually a matter of course in the daily lives of those who have accepted all that God has given them to the point that those traits become familiar hallmarks in the lives of people who have been made completely new. And to be sure, there could be no bigger change in a person's life. And so we sometimes struggle with that change because we haven't fully accepted the new that has already come in us. So we hold on to the dead weight of our old life in one hand and the hope of a new life with the other and then we struggle with the conflict between the two. It's also apparently... Uh, Not a new phenomenon, (laughs) as we'll see in this final installment of our sermon series working our way through the last chapter of the letter to the Hebrews where the author uses the final pages of the letter to describe the new life that has come to every Christian, the new life that we must fully embrace if we are to fully experience all that he's already given us. And yet, just as so many of us do today, Uh, These Hebrew Christians of the first century were trying to live between two worlds, between two kingdoms, between two lives, their new lives and their old lives. And so after 12 chapters of explaining why the new life in Christ is superior to the old life under the law, the author now gives us a glimpse of what this new life should look like for the Christian and what it takes to fully embrace it by letting go of the old. So let's jump back into the letter and we'll do a little uh, self-examination as we go and hopefully we'll learn a little more about what God has already done in our lives and how we can fully embrace all of that, okay? So let's read it together. Hebrews chapter 13 we'll begin with the first 16 verses. Let brotherly love continue for such sacrifices are pleasing to God. So the author opens this final chapter of the letter with let brotherly love continue, which is specifically describing love between Christians, by the way, uh, those who are members of the body of Christ, which of course is not to say... That we aren't supposed to love uh, those outside of the church. We certainly are, but in this letter and specifically in this last chapter, he's speaking to Christians when he says, Let brotherly love continue in verse 1, which is a theme that he bookends this first section of the chapter with by saying, Do not neglect to do good, and to share what you have, for such sacrifices are pleasing to God, in verse 16. So the section we just read is bookended with this same theme. So it's saying, when you, when you fully embrace the new life that you have in Christ, you will love one another sacrificially. Because if you are, in fact, loving people the way that God commands you to, then it's going to cost you something. Right. Which he then goes on to give several examples of in the verses that follow between those two bookends about sacrificial love. So he continues in verse two. Do not neglect to show hospitality to strangers for thereby some have entertained angels unawares Uh, in ancient in the ancient world. Travel was nothing like it is today. When you wanted to go somewhere, you didn't just jump into the minivan and head to the local Best Western at your final destination, right? Uh, Travel in antiquity was arduous. It was difficult at best. It was no fun at all. Most of the time, people traveled by foot up to 20 miles a day, often over rough terrain, having to carry whatever uh, supplies necessary to make the journey, and the inns that did exist were very often uh, dangerous places to stay. And so it was incumbent upon Christians to take care of each other, even if you'd never met the person before. In fact, as we'll see, especially if you'd never met the person before and by the way this wasn't just a uh, a general exhortation for christians to be kind or friendly to one another this was actually a clear directive by the author to love your brothers and sisters in christ even those you've never met before sacrificially the word hospitality in that verse in the ancient greek is the word ph- uh, philonyxia, sorry which literally means love to strangers Okay? There was actually a social code in the ancient Near East for hospitality, which included greeting a stranger with a, a bow or a kiss, which we find examples of in Genesis 18-2 and 19-1. And then as you you would welcome that stranger as a guest into your home. Stranger, Genesis 24, 31. Then there was an invitation to rest. Genesis 18, 4, and Judges 4, 19. Then an opportunity to wash. Remember, they traveled usually by foot on dirt paths. So by the time you were ready to stop for the night, you would usually need to clean up. Genesis 18, 4. Genesis 19, 2. Genesis 24, 32. Then you provided food and drink to your new guests. Judges 4, 19 and nineteen five. And then there was an invitation for fellowship or conversation with this stranger Genesis 24:33 and finally there was a provision of security for these newcomers these strangers while they were staying in the host's home Genesis 19:8 in fact if you read Leviticus 25:35 uh we'll just read it God's people were commanded he says if your brother becomes poor and cannot maintain himself with you you shall support him as though he were a stranger and a sojourner and he shall live with you in other words if your friend your buddy your pal is going through a really hard time you should increase the level of love and support that you usually show your good friend by treating him as though he were a stranger what does that tell you about the way God's people are to treat those they've just met You see, hospitality in the ancient world, it meant something entirely different than it does in our culture today. Hospitality for these early Christians meant opening your home, sharing your time and food and goods generously and graciously. In other words, it cost them something. And listen, God didn't just bless you with a home to live in. He blessed you with a home to love others in. And not just your friends, but people you've only just met as well. In fact, especially those you've just met. This was one of the characteristic marks of the New Testament church, and it needs to be a characteristic mark of the church today. Unless you're thinking, well, times have changed, Pastor. Strangers don't really come to your door anymore. Well, actually, strangers come to your door every single Sunday. You see, this is your church home, and it starts right here, when people who have never been here, never met us, when they walk through those doors for the very first time, and they don't know us. They don't know what to expect. They don't know how they will be treated. They've taken a chance just coming here. Do you understand that is the primary reason that we have an extended time of fellowship here every Sunday? It's not so you can catch up with the friends that you already have. You can do that on the phone at another time or during the week by visiting one another. No, this is time to make new friends By showing hospitality, love to strangers. Is that difficult? For some people it is. But that's why it's called sacrificial love. Because it costs you something. And yet that's just the first step. You see, it doesn't stop here. At least it had better not not if we're going to honor God's Word because it's not just about being friendly to new people that you meet at church no it's about making a genuine effort to get to know them and to love them yet you cannot do that adequately in 10 minutes during a church fellowship break so what do you do well typically personally I try not to freak people out by inviting them over to my house three minutes after I meet them. But if they come back to the church one or two more times, you'd better believe we're inviting them to our house or out to coffee or out to dinner or some other way to try and spend time with them outside of this building where we can have meaningful conversation and invest our time and our food and our resources with them generously and graciously. Now, I'll be honest... That's getting harder and harder for us to do consistently at this church as we continue to grow. But look, that's where you come in. Because I'm not the church, we are the church. You understand, you, you should be consistently inviting new folks, new families that you meet here over to your house for a meal or out to coffee or to a play date with your kids or to walk your pets together at the park or out on the trail or whatever you work out because we are the church. And that is one of the ways that we share the new life that Christ has put in us with other people. Will that cost you something? It most certainly will, but that's why it's called sacrificial love. Years ago, we took a poll here at the church, and we asked people a series of questions in writing to try and gain a a better understanding of people's perspective about the church, sort of a what are we doing well and what are we not doing so well sort of thing. And One of the questions on that questionnaire was, why do you keep coming back to Upcountry Church? And most people listed more than one reason uh, in response to that question. And in fact, there were a lot of great answers. But the single answer that every person who took the poll gave in one form or another to that one question was summed up so beautifully by one young woman, a woman who, by the way, struggles with severe social anxiety. She wrote this. I keep coming back to upcountry church because every time I walk through those doors, I feel like I've come home. That's the way it's supposed to be. And yet the only way that we can ever cause that to be, the only way that will ever be, is if you make this place home for every person who walks through those doors especially those who have never been here before and listen I don't care if you've been here six times or every Sunday for the past six years this is your job and it is my job to share the new life that we have in Christ by showing hospitality love to strangers you never know when you show hospitality You may just be entertaining angels. We certainly see that in some of the passages of Scripture that I just referenced above. Okay, so the author then continues. Remember those who are in prison as though in prison with them and those who are mistreated since you also are in the body. Now again, he's primarily referring to uh, other Christians here who were suffering in prison and from persecution for the sake of the gospel. But we can certainly extend that command to remember all who are suffering and in prison. As the Apostle Paul tells us, to comfort those who are in any affliction, 2 Corinthians 1.4. Also in Romans 15.1, he says, we who are strong have an obligation to bear with the failings of the weak. By the way, when he says uh, remember those who are in prison, the word remember in the Greek, especially when you consider the context here, it doesn't simply mean don't forget. It actually implies an, an active response to those who are suffering. This is why our testimony books... Are in the prison system it's why we correspond with them it's why we opened a church campus at solutions recovery it's why we have an abortion recovery ministry here it's why we feed and clothe the poor it's why we counsel with those who are hurting or struggling it's why helping those in need inside and outside of this body in tangible ways every single day is so much a part of who we are and what we do at this church Does it cost us something? You'd better believe it does. But that's why it's called sacrificial love. And it is something that every one of us, not just uh, vocational ministers, every one of us should be engaged in compassion ministries on a consistent basis because that is one of the ways that we share the new life of Christ that is in us with those who are broken and hurting. And then he continues, let marriage be held in honor among all and let the marriage bed be undefiled for God will judge the sexually immoral and adulterous. The sexually immoral are those who are not married but are sexually active and the adulterous are those who are married but are sexually active outside of that marriage. And of course, uh, those are the, the big offenses against marriage that get all the press. I would submit to you that the first offense listed here, the one before those two I just mentioned, is far more pervasive than the other two combined. He says, let marriage be held in honor among all. And that word all means all. Everyone. Including, listen, especially including the two people who are married to one another. And yet, it is not only common today, but socially acceptable and even celebrated in our culture to dishonor your marriage in a thousand different ways. But you know what? At the end of the day, you can boil almost every dishonoring moment in a marriage down to one common cause when you put yourself first. When you put your job before your spouse, when you put your friends before your spouse. When you put your kids before your spouse, when you put your personal desires before your spouse, when you put your need to be right before your spouse, when you put time for other people before your spouse, every time you put yourself or what you want or what you think is more important before your spouse, you are dishonoring your marriage. Is it hard to give up your own desires and your own preferences and your own interests and yes, even your own needs? Is it hard to give those things up in deference to your spouse? It certainly can be. But that's why it's called sacrificial love. Because that kind of love costs you something, and yet that's exactly what embracing the new life that we now have in Christ looks like. It's giving up ourselves. It's giving up our own lives for the sake of others, which is why the author says what he says next. Verse 5, keep your life free from the love of money. Verse nine, do not be led away by diverse and strange teachings, for it is good for the heart to be strengthened by grace, not by foods which have not benefited those devoted to them. So just remember, this letter was written to a group of first century Hebrew Christians who were really struggling with the monumental change in their lives from following the Mosaic law, the ceremonial law, which regulated every aspect of their lives, including what to eat and what not to eat, to now living under the law of Christ, according to the apostle Paul in galatians six two and in first corinthians nine twenty one a law of grace and truth that comes through Christ, according to the Apostle John in John 1, 17, which is all summed up in the commandment to love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind, according to Jesus, who also said, and the second is like it, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets, Matthew 22, 37, 39, and 40. This was a radical shift, a change for these first century Hebrews. And for some of them, it was almost more than they could stand. And so they were trying to mix their old religion with the new. They were holding on to their old life with one hand and their new life with the other. It was a form of syncretism. That's the blending of two belief systems. And so the author says, "They don't fall for it, boys. Don't go back to the way of this world where people chase after money and all kinds of strange teachings for through the grace of Christ you have everything that you need for this life and the next. and bear the reproach he endured for there we have no here we have no lasting city but we seek the city that is to come listen Jesus went to the place where the sacrificial animals were taken it's a reference to Calvary outside the gate of Jerusalem and so the author says don't run to this world run to Jesus. Outside the gate, you go to where he is. It's a metaphor for leaving behind your old life, for leaving behind the ways of this world and the love of this world and the approval of this world and fully embracing the new life that you now have in Christ, which means being willing to sacrifice your own life just as Jesus did, sharing in his reproach and suffering if need be to love others the way that he loves us. Will that cost you something? Yes. It will cost you your life. That's why it's called sacrificial love. Let's continue. Verse 17. Obey your leaders and submit to them for their keeping watch over your souls as those who will have to give an account Let them do this with joy and not with groaning, for that would be of no advantage to you. Now when he talks about obeying your leaders and submitting to them, he's talking about the same leaders he mentioned in verse seven. Remember your leaders, those who spoke to you the word of God. Consider the outcome of their way of life and imitate their faith. So uh, the leaders that he says we're to obey and submit to are those who teach us the word of God. Uh, Primarily, at least in this context, he's referring to pastors. When he he says those who watch over your souls, he uses the ancient Greek word agripneo, which was used to describe shepherds caring for sheep or as a sentry in a military service. In fact, uh, in the Septuagint, Uh, the ancient Greek translation of the Old Testament, this very same word is used to describe the activities of a watchman on duty in the city. So he's primarily referring to pastors of the local churches here. However, this can certainly be applied to all who teach the word of God, which would include parents, Sunday school teachers, Bible study leaders, mentors, small group leaders, ministry team leaders who teach that could even certainly include friends if you're indeed being taught the Word of God by a friend so when you fully embrace the new life that you have in Christ the author says not only will you love one another sacrificially but you will obey one another submissively and of course submission uh, has almost become a bad word in our culture at least in part because for centuries the church abused the true meaning of the word So, we only have ourselves to blame. However, that does not mean that we should ignore the true meaning of the word in our lives today. Okay? When the author tells us to obey your leaders and submit to them, that statement is inseparably linked to the teaching of the word of God. So, he's not saying just because someone calls himself a pastor, you should blindly obey and submit to everything that he says. Not at all. In fact, uh, that's how cults get started. Now, he's saying to obey and submit to the teaching of leadership and leadership of the one who faithfully teaches the word of God as it has been given to us, unaltered, and also to the one whose own life reflects that very teaching. And look, when, we're, when you uh, are fully embracing. And walking in the new life that Christ has given you, submitting your life to sound biblical teaching, actually comes very naturally. And so if you are resisting sound biblical instruction for your life, maybe you're uh, struggling in a relationship or with a circumstance you're facing, then yes, it is good to seek counsel from someone who will tell you what the word says before they will tell you what their opinion is. But listen if they lay bare God's word on the matter before you as they should, and you're still unwilling to do what is right, you're still unwilling to obey and submit to the word of God and the counsel that is based on that word, that is often a clear indicator that you're holding on to your former manner of life which is corrupt through deceitful desires, which, by the way, is a really great way to invite conflict into your own life because you cannot hold on to life with one hand and death with the other and expect there to be no conflict between the two. You're inviting disaster into your own life when you refuse to obey and submit to the word of God and the counsel that brings it. By the way, uh, this is just as strong a word to those who teach as it is to those who are being taught, because he says you who are teaching will have to give an account. In other words those who teach the Word of God those who lead Bible studies or mentor other people or raise children or lead a class or teach in a ministry certainly pastors all of those leaders who are teaching the Word of God are going to be held accountable by God for every single thing that we teach which is why James the brother of Jesus wrote not many of you should become teachers my brothers For you know that we who teach will be judged with greater strictness. James 3 1. In fact, Jesus himself said, I tell you, on the day of judgment, people will give an account for every careless word they speak. Matthew 12 36. That is why I prepare these sermons with fear and trembling. Every word has to matter. Do you understand how important it is? Listen, if you're in a position of leadership within the body of Christ where you're teaching others, do you understand how critical it is for them and for you that you're teaching God's word and not people's opinions about God's word? And if you're not able to do that, then you should not be a teacher For you know that we who teach will be judged with greater strictness. It's what's best for you not to teach if you can't teach the word of God. Of course, uh, listen, no one is 100% correct about everything. We all know that, right? We're all flawed human beings, and there are certainly areas of doctrine that are Uh, disputed by capable, well-meaning pastors and scholars and teachers who are men and women of integrity. Of course, I'm simply saying, as ministry leaders in the body of Christ, we are not called to teach cultural concepts or popular philosophy or motivational speeches or political positions or personal agendas. No, if you are a leader in the body of Christ in a teaching position, your mandate Which is clearly laid out by the way throughout the New Testament is to teach the Word of God and for everyone else including those who teach we all every one of us are commanded to submit our lives to that word to that truth when you're fully embracing the new life that you have in Christ submitting your life to his word is actually a joy it isn't always easy but it is a life full of joy. Let's finish the letter then. Verse 18 to the end. Pray for us, for we are sure that we have a clear conscience desiring to act honorably in all things. I urge you the more earnestly to do this in order that I may be restored to you the sooner. Now, may the God of peace, who brought again from the dead our Lord Jesus, the great shepherd of the sheep, by the blood of the eternal covenant, equip you with every good thing that you may do his will, working in us that which is pleasuring pleasuring in his sight, through Jesus Christ, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. I appeal to you, brothers. Bear with my word of exhortation, for I have written to you briefly. You should know that our brother Timothy has been released, with whom I shall see you if... uh, if he comes soon greet all your leaders and all the saints those who come from Italy send you greetings grace be with all of you. Uh, So most of this last section of course is the author's final greetings and encouragements but before all of that he gives one final instruction about walking in the new life of Christ something that really should be common to all Christians. Verse 19 he says I urge you all the more earnestly to do this Well, to do what? Verse 18, pray for us. Okay, as followers of Jesus Christ, fully embracing the new life that we have in him means that we are to love one another sacrificially, obey one another submissively, and pray for one another earnestly. And it's noteworthy to point out here that the author says, I urge you the more earnestly to do this, to pray, Why? In order that I may be restored to you the sooner. In other words, the one thing more than any other that the author credits for getting himself from where he is to where he needs to be is prayer by the body of Christ. He doesn't say what's going to get me out of my predicament and back with you where I belong is lobbying the government or paying off the jailer or influencing the local officials or marching in the streets. No, he says the one thing that will get me back to you sooner than anything else is you praying for me. You see, when it comes to walking in the new life of Christ that we've been given we cannot underestimate the power and effectiveness of prayer, particularly corporate prayer within the body of Christ to affect real change in our lives. Author and pastor E.M. Bounds wrote, Prayer breaks all bars, dissolves all chains, opens all prisons, and widens all straits by which God's saints have been held. Acts 12.5 says that Peter was in prison, but earnest prayer for him was made to God by the church. And if you keep reading in that passage, you'll find that an angel came miraculously in the middle of the night and led Peter out of that prison. Acts 16.25 and 26 describes Paul and Silas' experience in prison. It says about midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God and the prisoners were listening to them. They were praying and singing hymns to God. And suddenly there was a great earthquake so that the foundations of the prison were shaken and immediately all the doors were opened and everyone's bonds were unfastened. They not only left the prison that night, but they led the jailer to Christ and baptized him and his entire family. In Acts 4.31, after Peter and John were arrested, imprisoned, interrogated by the council, and then released, they returned to the other disciples to pray together, and it says, when they had prayed, the place in which they were gathered together was shaken, and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and continued to speak the word of God with boldness. I'm telling you, if you're in a place in your life where you can't seem to get where you need to be, nothing will bring about change faster. Nothing will shake things up for you quicker, and nothing will show you the pathway to freedom sooner than prayer, especially when you gather with other believers and pray together. That's why Jesus said, if two uh, of you agree on anything uh, they ask, It will be done for them by my Father in heaven, for where two or three are gathered in my name, there am I among them. Listen, it's wonderful, and it is necessary to pray when you're alone. Those can be some of the most intimate and insightful times of prayer that you will ever have with God. But when your circumstances have you backed into a corner, when your marriage is in great distress, when your finances are in complete ruins, when your family is falling apart, when your health is in danger, when your hurt is overwhelming, when your heart has been broken, when your trust has been uh, betrayed, when your life seems to be in tatters in your peace is all but gone, when you desperately, desperately need something to change, something to move, something to be shaken in your life, whether it's a resolution or a rescue you're looking for, there is nothing as powerful or effective in bringing about real change in your life as when you gather together with your brothers and sisters in Christ and join your hearts and your minds and your voices together in prayer prayer There's a profound power and spiritual significance when we gather together and pray with other believers. That's when you'll see things happen. And likewise, listen, no matter how smart or ambitious or resourceful you are, there will be circumstances and situations in your life at times that you will not be able to change without prayer. Counselor and author Craig Lounsborough once said, Brilliance without prayer is like a car with four flat tires. It might be a truly fine vehicle, but it isn't going anywhere. It is vitally important that as believers we pray for and with one another earnestly. And you will find the more that you embrace the new life that you have in Christ and let go of the old, the more praying for and with others will become the highlight of your days, because that is a natural extension of who you are when you belong to Christ. Okay, if you're a Christian, everything that you need to successfully navigate this life in the very center of God's will has already been given to you because the Spirit of Christ has been given to you. Yes, He has good gifts to give you throughout your life, of course, but you have everything that you need for today because the spirit of the living God lives inside of you. Honestly, what else could you possibly need? see, it's it's not a matter of getting more from God as much as it is embracing what he's already provided for you, but if you're going to fully embrace that new life that is yours, then you have to let go of the old one. Remember, the old has passed away. It's dead. The new has come. But as long as you insist on holding on to life with one hand while still clinging on to death with the other, you're going to continue to experience unresolved turmoil and conflict in your life. Take it to the bank. And so if that is you, if you're struggling with the old deceased life of your past, why don't you let that go? Drop the dead weight of this world. Accept the new that has come and then watch every single thing in your life change. Let's pray.